Good. Um, I have the privilege and honor of uh, speaking to you this morning on our first Sunday of Advent. So it's a privilege uh, to be here, to be able to speak to you. Every opportunity I have to tell people about the goodness of Jesus, how great he is, how much we need him, um, I always feel honored and humbled by that. Um, one of the things that, um, and this is going to probably create some enemies right off the bat, I hate the beach. Hate it. Like everything within, everything inside of me, I hate the sand. I hate the fact that you have to wash and get sand off of you. No matter what you do, it's still all over the place in your car when you're done. No matter what you try to do to remove as much sand off of you, there's, I, I don't like what you do at the beach. I don't like to sit, I, I don't like putting stuff on me. All the liquid and ointments and gels and pasty things. And, you know, uh, I don't like that. I don't like coming home and smelling like whatever you just put on you. Um, I never remember. I never do it enough. So there's spots that are really red and burned, like little burn spots because I don't do it right because I'm just angry about it. So I don't even pay attention. I'm just angrily putting things on me. Um, so pretty much the whole experience of a beach and me are not are not kosher. But uh, my wife and I, uh, Carrie, we go to North Carolina at, le at least once a year to visit her family that lives there. Um, we kind of spend some of our time with her dad and stepmom and some of our time with her sister and her family. And um, one year we ended up uh, going to the beach. And uh, this was a year that her mom ended up coming with us. And um, so we are at the beach and we are uh, doing our thing. And I, I'm not excited about it. I'm, I'm making it obvious that I'm not excited about it. I'm kind of grumping out. I'm like, no, I'm not doing anything. No, this was pre-kids, so there's, now there's nothing to do. I can't even make sandcastles because I look like a four-year-old. I can't do anything. I'm just supposed to lay there on the beach. I don't even like the clothing you wear on the beach. I'm not, I, am not, I don't have a beach body, okay? So I'm like really insecure about myself on the beach. So there's a lot of things that are going on in me when I'm on the beach. So I'm in a snowsuit just to on the beach. <laughs> but um, so we're there and uh, my, my, we're just doing our thing, doing whatever. And I hear this faint, this faint, weird noise in the distance of like an, ah, and we're like, what was that? And we just kind of ignore it. And then like a few, maybe a minute later, I, there's, it's again, it's a, it, there's another noise and I can kind of make it out. It sounds a little bit like, help. We're like, whoa. So I'm looking around. I can't see anything. All of a sudden, Carrie notices her mom is drifting out into the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. She's drifting away. And so that's where the help is coming from. She's so far out in the ocean, we can barely even hear it. And all of a sudden, Carrie just goes, someone go get her. <laughs> like, we're all just standing there going, oh, that's going to stink. She's, she's, really, she's really floating away. She's really out there. I don't think she's making it back. I don't think she's, so finally, Carrie screams, someone go help her. So out of instinct, because I don't know what I, what I was thinking, I'm not a lifeguard, I've never done this before, um, I jump in the water and I just start swimming. And what felt like um, a few days, because I'm swimming and I'm swimming and I'm swimming, I look back and they look like ants on the shore and I look forward and she still looks like an ant as far as I got to go. So she's just, 
So I finally, I finally make it to her. She has her arms wrapped around this pillar, and I guess a pier used to go out into the ocean, and that pier had since been removed or broke down or whatever happened to it, and the pillars still existed. They were still there, and she's got her arms wrapped around this pillar, and uh, she's just holding on for dear life, and as the waves are coming in, they're smashing her against the pillar, but she knows if I let go of this, I'm drifting even farther out, and I guess what happened is she had not realized how far out into the ocean she had drifted. She just kind of fell asleep or something in the water. Uh, again, another reason why I don't go to the beach, because when you fall asleep, you drift away. I don't drift away on my couch. Wherever I fell asleep, I wake right back up in the same place. I don't find myself in another country a few days later. I'm safe on the couch. The couch is safe for me. So, but clearly, um, she did not listen to whoever told us don't go out and don't go near the pillars. She's clearly not a good listener. Um, but I do muster up the strength to get her. She grabs onto my neck, and I somehow swim us. She had run out of energy. She was, she was, she was um, dead meat if someone didn't come get her, if something didn't happen. So she grabs onto me, and I'm just swimming back. And it t- I don't know how long it took us. It took us forever. And um, I said, woman, you owe me. I just saved your life. So whatever I want from this day forward, I'm just going to say, I could have left you in the ocean. Whatever I want is mine for the rest of my life. Um, We're going to come back to this because I think what's interesting about this story is um, she had to find something kind of to cling to. um, And and in the hopes of not sounding too cheesy, uh, we all cling to something. We cling to something ultimate in our life that without it, we would die without it. We think we would die without it. And um, oftentimes it's not... Um, what we wished it would be. It doesn't turn out to have what it promised us to have, and um, it's not everything it's cracked up to be. Uh, and so we're going to come back to that as we look at our passage today um, and see how, how we can use that. But we're going to look at Matthew 3, um, 1 through 12. So if you want to open to that in your scriptures, it'll also be on the screen. But it says this, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. When Jerusalem and all Judea, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, in the beginning of our verses here in our passage, we're introduced to this guy, John the Baptist. Um, John uh, was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, outlined in Luke 1. Let's look at that real quick just to see um, 
how he was spoken of before he was born. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So it's kind of obvious that God wants us uh, to make wants to make very clear who John was. He wants us to know about him, to expect him. Um, Isaiah speaks about him in the Old Testament. Uh, we heard that this morning in our uh, our call to worship. Uh, and now we're seeing this fulfillment take place, and God is preparing um, his his parents for his coming through the angel. And now also in Matthew 11, Jesus speaks of John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 1 through 15, which says, when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison, so John is now in prison. This is past um, our scripture uh, already that we've read. He's in prison. And now John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you see, what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you see? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? When did you go out to see? What did you what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, and more than a prophet. This is of whom this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now pause right there, guys. He's the greatest. So if you think you're great, you can't be. You can only be second. Because John the Baptist, just said, just saying, it says, born of women, there's been no one greater. So if you think you're great, you can only be second. Sorry. Yet, there is one who is, yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is even greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now in the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
So something can happen when we read about people like John the Baptist. He is a major player in the, uh, the fulfillment of God's will um, in preparing the hearts of the people as Jesus is coming. And uh, it's easy to kind of look at John and wish you could be like John. It's easy to take a story about a major player in the scriptures and decide, I wish I could be like this, John. I wish I could confront religiosity the way John does. I wish I could preach the gospel the way John does. I wish I could have an impact and all of the people would come to me like John does. And I wish I could be like John. I wish I could have a ministry like John. But John himself would say, no, 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 don't do that. Don't you go building me up like that. You see, it was this same John who said, he, meaning Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. He says this in John 3. In that passage, some of those with John were seemingly tattling on Jesus and telling John, hey, you know that guy you, you baptized? Um, yeah, he's now baptizing people. He's kind of stealing your disciples. And, and, and uh, John's response was, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So in this scenario, John knew his role. John stayed in his lane. He, he knew where he belonged um, as it related to Jesus. So while we shouldn't be interested in putting John on a pedestal he doesn't belong on, let's take seriously the message that John did come to proclaim. So what was this message? Repent. It's simple. Repent. Repent is the first word of John the Baptist's gospel in Matthew 3. Repent is the first word of Jesus' gospel in Matthew 4 and Mark 1. Repent is the first word in the preaching ministry of the 12 disciples in Mark 6. Repent is the first word in the uh, preaching instructions Jesus gave his disciples after his resurrection in Luke 24. Repent is the first word of exhortation in the first Christian sermon of Acts 2. And repent is the first word in the mouth of the apostle Paul through his ministry in Acts 26. When someone wants to proclaim the gospel, when someone begins to talk about Jesus, when somebody wants to help people to be forgiven of sins and show them the truth, repentance is the only appropriate response. Everything ends in repentance. It comes to full fruition in repentance, our salvation. When someone talks about being saved from their sin, repentance is the only appropriate response. Because of this, how we understand repentance is crucial. What we think about repentance is important. In one of my uh, mornings that I was studying for this, I just decided I'm just going to look at just the idea of repentance. Because I think sometimes, and I made this mistake even going into this, that if I didn't do this, I knew I would make this mistake. Sometimes as you grow in your Christian walk and as you are, uh, as you are following Jesus for a long time, this word repent or confess, uh, there are certain words in the Bible that become familiar. And we just attach whatever our familiarity is to it, and we move on from it. And I think that it's important to kind of settle in on words that we become used to so we can be realigned to what they actually mean instead of what we've, we're just kind of thinking about in that moment. So if I took everything I read and everything I studied and put it into a paragraph, I tried to do a sentence, but it was too many semicolons. So I stopped trying to fool myself and just made it into a paragraph. It says this about repentance. It is by all those who define both the word and its theological meaning, a radical turning, a radical conversion, a transformation of nature, a definitive turning from evil toward God, a commitment to move from unrighteousness to righteousness, from disobedience to obedience. And this conversion is once for all 
There can be, says one writer, no going back, only advance in responsible movement along the way now taken. It is a life-altering event, this repentance. It affects the whole person. First and basically, it affects the center of personal life. Then logically, from, cent- from that center, it begins to impact all conduct, thought life, situations, and actions. The whole proclamation of Jesus, then, is a proclamation of once for all, complete, unconditional turning from sin to God. Unconditional from all that is against God to all that honors him. It is not just turning away from what we could say is downright wickedness. It is even turning from all things that are not God-honoring outlined in the word of God. Not just the ones we tend to naturally align with or that, we're willing, or that we willingly agree with. It is total surrender. It is total commitment to the will of God and the word of God. It embraces the whole life of a person. It carries with it the founding of a new personal relation between someone and God. And it awakens joyous obedience for a life lived according to God's will. Like I said, I couldn't put that in a sentence. No way. But that's significant. I don't think I oftentimes think of repentance in that way when I'm just reading through the scriptures. I don't take time to sit back and go, what does this word mean for me? The words like radical and total and surrender. Abandonment of self-will. Now, John's message, to be clear, was not, you're a sinner, you need to repent, which is interesting. His message was, Messiah the King is coming, and the most natural response is repentance. He's coming. He's on his way. Prepare your hearts, O Jerusalem. So it's not, you're just a sinner, it's someone is coming, and our hearts need to be ready for when he gets here. Something interesting about John's call to repentance and baptism is that he seems to be offering a way for remission of sins without requiring going to Jerusalem and offering a sacrifice, which was the normal custom in that day. So he's kind of going kind of against the grain. He's, he's kind of going against what the natural cultural uh, norms are. And if this is correct, it kind of does explain why the Jerusalem leadership would have been uneasy with John when they come to him. And it may explain why he seems so harsh in how he speaks to them. But his main purpose was to prepare the Jewish people, specifically the Jewish people, for the Messiah by reawakening their hearts to their sin and bring awareness of sin among Israel so that they could receive the salvation from sin to be offered by this coming Messiah. Now, this this idea of making your path straight... um, is really amazing. If you look at what this means for us, it has in mind the building of a great road where there is no road in preparation for a majestic king. And the idea is to fill in the holes, knock down the trees, cut through hills, barrel through mountains, the the quickest way from where the king is to where he needs to be. And so the idea is that we don't want to go around, we don't want to get tripped up, we don't want trees in the way, sends out people in front of him to make a path so that that king can arrive and that arrival is as smooth as possible. And that's what we're hearing here. This is what John is trying to do. The Messiah King is coming and our hearts need to be prepared. All the trees of sin, all the unrighteous, everything within us, we have to admit our guilt of sinfulness so that when he comes, we can respond to his offer of salvation. 
It goes on to say this, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now I want you to notice something. Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. He's having a significant impact. He's entered the scene and everyone is coming. He is causing a stir in the community and in the culture. And John, as John is baptizing them, they're confessing their sins out loud so everyone can hear them. They're not secretly tiptoeing and going, hey, John, I want in. How do I get in? They're, they're out loud proclaiming their sin. Jews. Jewish people who didn't realize they were in spiritual turmoil because they belonged to Abraham. This is crazy. The Jewish people figured they were safe. We are part of Abraham. We have no worries. We are safe. He is our safety net. And John is calling them to something different. Confess your sins. Spurgeon says this, the confessing of their sins, which went with baptism in Jordan, gave it its meaning. Apart from the acknowledgement of guilt, it would have been a mere bathing of the person without spiritual significance. Without confessing of sin, baptism is nothing but a bath. It's outward only. So he's having quite an impact. Then, as John is baptizing people, he sees the Pharisees coming and the Sadducees coming. These two groups are very different and often in conflict, uh, but together they represent the leadership of Judaism. We don't really know why they're coming. We don't have a motive. It doesn't really tell us um, why they're there. Uh, maybe Are they there to be baptized? Is God doing something unique in their hearts? Maybe. Are they there to confront John because he's baptizing and he shouldn't be? Maybe. Are they curious because this is kind of crazy and things are happening that is abnormal? Maybe. But what we do know is that John lays a smackdown. <laughs> John confronts them in their beliefs, in their cultural norms. And it's no mistake that John is baptizing in the wilderness, by the way. The wilderness is far from Jerusalem. And the temple, which is, it, the temple was deemed corrupt. The Romans had appointed their own high priest in the temple, a man that they thought they could work with and control and manipulate to do their own will. So when John the Baptist comes on the scene, most of the people in Israel see the temple leadership as corrupt because of their closeness to Rome. We don't trust Rome. So if you belong to that, we don't trust you. So he's in the wilderness separate from that. He's, he's separating his connection from that so they can see something different. So while we may not know their motives, we sure do know what, how John feels about them. He says this, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, it was widely taught in that day that Abraham's merits were all you needed. If you were Jewish, to receive salvation, and that a Jewish person couldn't even go to hell. But John points out that these, to these Pharisees and scribes that they are from a different family. When he says, you brood of vipers, you know what he's saying? He's saying, you belong to snakes. You deceptive snakes. You don't belong to Abraham. 
You belong to serpents. You're not Abraham's children. You don't act like Abraham's children. You don't talk about God like Abraham's children. You don't lead people like Abraham's children. You lead people like serpents and deceivers. This dude's got some guts. These were the religious leaders. You are the spawn of snakes. Then he goes on to say, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Like a, like a woodsman with careful aim, cutting at the root of the tree that is not bearing fruit to make room for trees that will bear fruit. The axe is coming. You sneaky snakes, you think you're fooling everyone, but you're not fooling anyone. You're not fooling God. You might have people fooled, but God is not fooled. He knows your heart. God is not impressed. You are in danger outside of what I'm doing here. You are in danger outside of true spiritual transformation, which solely and only will come through Jesus, not Abraham. Your connection to Abraham cannot save you from the wrath to come. And then he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he, is, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. John recognizes his own place before Jesus He's not worthy to carry his, his sandals. He's saying, I'm lower than a slave compared to Jesus. So don't put me up on some pedestal and think that I'm great. I'm just preparing us for the one that is great. He will baptize you with, Holy, with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit, promised in the New Covenant. We find that in Ezekiel 37, 14. And to baptize with fire means to bring the fires of judgment, which will purify the righteous, but destroy the wicked like chaff. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Chaff is this worthless residue. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's, most of us don't if we're not in, in this sort of a cultural element, but the you know a big, huge pitchfork, and you put it in the wheat, and you throw it in the air, and all the chaff blows away, and then the heavy grain falls to the, back to the ground. And whoever's doing this, they just keep doing that with their fork. They just keep throwing, the, throwing it in the air, and the chaff blows away, and the grain falls. The grain's nice and heavy. The chaff is nice and light. The wind takes it away. Can you believe that he's saying to these religious leaders, the winnowing fork is in his hand, and as he throws it in the air, you will be blown away. You will not fall. You will not be gathered. You will be burned. <laughs> this, is, this is getting heated. Now that we've read through this passage, it's kind of heavy, right? It's real heavy. Let's get at what it's getting at. Someone crying in the wilderness says, prepare the way of the Lord, and he was prophesied about in the Old Testament. This prophecy was fulfilled through John the Baptist. John the Baptist is calling for the Jewish culture, culture to repent, which was odd because Jews looked at their relationship with Abraham as their safety net. John makes very clear that clinging to their relationship to Abraham would not be sufficient. Through John, God was reawakening the hearts of Israel to their very real sin to prepare their hearts for the Messiah, King Jesus. John confronts the religious rulers and scribes to expose their faulty thinking so that they and others would confess their sins and repent, which means turn away 
radical conversion, total commitment, total surrender, all or nothing. Give it all to me. Don't hold anything for yourself. Give it all to me. You own nothing. You don't have a penny in your bank account. You don't sit on your own couch. You don't have your own house. Everything belongs to me. Now, I'm willing to bet that if there's something other than Jesus that you're depending on for your salvation, it's probably not your connection to Abraham. <laughs> I've never once thought to myself, man, I'm connected to Abraham. I'm, I'm good. I don't think anyone in our culture thinks that way. But I do think that people in our culture think, I'm okay because of me. I don't think we think I'm okay because of Abraham. What we think now is I'm okay because of me. They thought that Abraham was good enough to save them. They were wrong. You may think you are good enough to save yourself. You also are wrong. Hmm. With everything in me, I want every person in this room to have a genuine, deep, vibrant, riveting relationship with God because of Jesus. But, there's a, but here's the deal. If you're depending on anything other than Jesus to secure your eternity, you are in danger of unquenchable fire. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Sometimes these things can sound harsh, even hurtful, and our pride stands in the way. I'm reminded of a story when I was, um, when Cohen was younger, and uh, we, were, we're, we were doing stuff in the kitchen, and we've talked to him before about, you know, you don't touch the stove because it can be hot, and, you know, you don't go close to it when we're doing stuff. If, if Carrie was baking something, you know, we would tell him, move away from the stove because it's going to be open. We don't want you to get burned. We'd have all these rules, and we want to make sure he's safe, Right? And so there was one moment where I remember he was trying to reach for something and I saw his hand almost touch the burner of the stove and I yelled at him loudly and firmly. I said, stop! And he jolted. And he started to cry because I scared him. I yelled at him so hard, I scared him. But I didn't want him to burn himself, so I figured there's, there's got to be something that I say that's going to stop him because saying, hey, hey, buddy, hey, um... Yeah, I'm thinking that by, and by the time I even start being gentle, his hand's burned, and I'm going to the emergency room. So I had to make a quick comment. Now, his tears, now, would you say that I was unloving in that situation? Would you say that I didn't love my child? I yelled at him. I made him cry. Did I not love him? No, because I yelled at him, and because I was harsh, and because I was firm, and because I said the truth, and because I cared about him, I did love him. And I think sometimes we hear these words in the scriptures. We hear words like repent and turn. And if not, then judgment awaits. We don't really like it. But I would say it's the most loving thing the word of God can tell us. Because if it's true, we are in danger. If it's true, without Jesus, the axe does hit at our roots. And we are the chaff that blows away and is not gathered. And we don't have eternal life in our future. I don't want a bunch of soft words to make me feel good. I want the truth. I don't want to find out later, after I die, that people lied to me and told me I was safe. John the Baptist is not lying to these religious people. He's saying, you're not safe. You think you're safe, but you're not safe. And I would say to us, sometimes we think we're safe, but we're not safe. 
We use the wrong metric system. We use the wrong measuring stick. I'm okay. I'm good. I do a couple good things now and then. Not as bad as some other people, but God says you need Jesus and Jesus only. Don't add to it. Don't take anything away from that. Friends, I'm reminded of our original story I shared, clinging to that pillar. You need to cling to Christ. Don't cling to your finances. Don't cling to your jobs. Don't cling to your family. Don't cling to this church. You cling to Jesus. Confess your sins to Jesus. Acknowledge your guilt to Jesus. Repent and turn from your sins toward Jesus. Cling to Jesus. I don't know what you're most susceptible to clinging to today, but as we begin our season of Advent and the idea of the Messiah King is coming, I would urge all of us to prepare our hearts by letting go of whatever we cling to that is junk, letting go of whatever we cling to that is empty, letting go of whatever we cling to that has promised us something that is not Jesus. He's the only thing you can cling to and obtain eternal life. Let's fill in the holes. Let's knock down the trees. Let's cut through the hills. Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Worship team is going to come up. We're going to pray. I just want to pray for you guys. As we enter this season of Advent, it's easy to forget because Christmas in America has a lot of different agendas. In your home, make the agenda Jesus. And at all costs, make the agenda Jesus. I don't care what that means. I don't care who talks bad about you because of it. You and your family and your kids, you need Jesus in that home because he's the greatest gift. He's the greatest gift that you can present your family with and that God has presented you with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we embark on this Advent season, I pray that our hearts would be prepared, that God, right now, that we would at least acknowledge our guilt before you, that right now, God, we would also see your gift of Jesus that satisfies the wrath that would come because of our guilt. I pray that we wouldn't try to sidestep the cross by trying to make our way another way. I pray that we would really see Jesus for who he is and that our hearts would be stirred like those Jewish people in that culture as all people, all Judea, and all the people in that region were coming to John because you were doing something in their hearts, God. I pray that you would do something in the hearts of Renovation Church, that you would stir in us something new, something unique, something refreshing, reawaken us to the truth that we need you. Don't let this season go by without us acknowledging that. In Jesus' name. Amen.